Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management. I'm Frank Ferris, here to talk with you about dyspnea, shortness of breath, something I suspect every single one of us fears. In this module, we're going to be talking about the definition, the pathophysiology as always, what's the impact, and practical management strategies. So, when you think about dyspnea as a word, how would you define it? I suspect most of us would say, well, it's subjective, and, and I've got difficulty or even distress in my breathing. As a child, did you ever have the experience of a brother or a sister or someone in your family put a pillow over your head and they sat on you and you said, oh my God, get, get off of me, I can't breathe. Or maybe somebody in the pool pushed you under the water and held you down so that you couldn't take a deep breath. You were down and you said, let me up, let me up. Well, those are all short-term experiences of shortness of breath, aren't they? And of course, the bottom line is, only you knew how you felt. It's impossible for somebody looking from outside to be able to say you're short of breath. Now, when we ask patients, what do they say? Many different words come forth. Some people with bronchospasm, such as asthma or cystic fibrosis, might say, I'm really tight in my chest. Others might say, I just can't get a good breath. Or in heart failure, where people are often full of fluid, I'm suffocating. Oh my goodness, and they really are. Many people will say, I'm just hungry for more air. And for those who have loss of muscle mass, it's really hard to breathe. This is really heavy work. So people use a variety of words, but what they're really trying to convey to us is they're simply short of breath. So given all those words, I want you to have an experience. How does dyspnea actually feel? You and I, as healthcare providers, really need to understand our patients. So, let's try a little exercise. I'm going to ask you to take a big breath and hold it for a minute. So get out your smartphone, set your timer, set it up for one minute. As soon as you're ready, what I'd like you to do is take a big breath, stop the video, wait till the one minute's finished, and then we'll come back again. Ready? Three, two, one. <gasps> So now we're back. How did that feel? Anybody feel, oh my goodness, this is really hard to hold your breath. I, I, I need some air. Lots of people don't even make it through the one minute. Did you? I hope so. But of course, your experience is very personal. So now I'd like you to try another exercise. Let's take out a straw. Maybe you need to pet, fetch one. And what I want you to do is breathe through the straw for up to three minutes. Some of you may actually need to pinch your nose. 
Or, if you can, just put the straw in your mouth. Of course, set your timer for three minutes. And as we begin, don't forget to turn off the video and come back again after the three minutes are up. So now let's try it. Put the straw in your mouth. Three, two, one. Let's breathe together. Okay, now you finished the three minutes of breathing through the straw. How did that feel? Most of you will say, whoa, I was totally focused on breathing through the straw. I couldn't think about anything else. Lots of people say, oh, I got some saliva in there and it was really noisy and hard to breathe. And I want you to imagine that that's as good as it's ever going to be. And in fact, the size of your airway is going to get smaller and smaller over time. Was that frightening? To imagine that that would never go away and it's only going to get worse? Most people say shortness of breath is the worst possible symptom, the worst possible experience. And many people will say, if I'm short of breath, I just don't even want to be aware of it. So I hope you never forget your experiences. I hope you actually manage people's shortness of breath quickly. And we're going to talk about how. So now that we've had an experience, let's begin to talk about the importance of shortness of breath. What we know is it's very common in the population of patients approaching the end of their lives. In our hospice programs here in the U.S., we've seen up to 71% of patients experience shortness of breath. And as we look at patients with underlying cancers, depending on their stage, it ranges from 21 up to 90% are going to be short of breath. Without cardiopulmonary pathology, it's actually as high as a quarter of them. It's amazing. It's so prevalent. And it's a predictor of hospitalization and mortality in chronic lung disease. It's more closely correlated with five-year survival than the forced expiratory volume in one second, or FEV1. Surprised? I was. And over 10% of the palliative pair care inpatient consults are for shortness of breath and 70% of hospice patients, as we've said, have shortness of breath. It turns out in cancer, it's also a prognostic indicator. As we look at a wonderful study done by our colleagues in Australia, as they monitored respiratory effort and movement over time, and you can see it goes from 90 down to zero days, particularly in the last 30 days. For patients experiencing respiratory failure, their respiratory drive got less and less, and it was a predictor that they were going to die. For patients with cancers, what you can see is their respiratory effort goes up and up and up, particularly as they approach the end of life. And for patients with cardiac failure or non-cardiorespiratory causes, it also goes up, particularly in the last 30 days. So if you see somebody more distressed and you're unable to relieve it, it's a strong predictor they're approaching the end of their lives. So now that we've had our experience, let's talk about the pathophysiology 
the causes for dyspnea. There's this wonderful pyramid that's been developed that really lays out all the different possible causes. Is it coming from our lungs? Maybe it's a pneumothorax or an infection, pneumonia, or have we aspirated? Maybe it's acute respiratory distress syndrome or even a pulmonary embolus. Is it coming from our heart? Congestive heart failure leads to a lot of fluids building up in our lungs, pulmonary edema, or an infarction, or maybe even an arrhythmia. Is it a problem with our blood and the carrying capacity is down because we've got anemia and we can't carry enough oxygen molecules? Or is it actually a pH problem, respiratory alkalosis, or maybe metabolic acidosis? You and I have a complex collection of receptors. Some of those are chemical receptors surrounding our midbrain and the respiratory control center, which sense gas levels and pH. Do we not have enough oxygen? Or maybe we've got too much carbon dioxide, or the pH is off. All of these sensors actually provide inputs to our breathing control center and say, breathe, breathe. There's also a series of mechanoreceptors all across our chest. They're in our muscles. They're proprioceptors. They are expecting us to move. The problem comes in things like cachexia, where patients have muscle wasting, or if they've had an accident and they've fractured, or maybe they've got a mesothelioma and their chest wall is fixed and they can't move, well, they feel short of breath. And finally, have any of you ever sat down on an airplane? When you sat down, you reached up to adjust the nozzle and get some air flowing across your face? Well, you were getting that air to influence the receptors across your face, as well as you have receptors in your sinuses and across your nasal turbinates. Those receptors are expecting to feel airflow. If any one of these are off, there's a mismatch and you're going to feel short of breath. So, in fact, this all gets worse if we don't exercise, if we're actually deconditioned, put a patient to bed and they don't get much exercise, they can make the shortness of breath worse. With prevalent, it's, it's much more prevalent at rest with disease progression, as you would expect. And, of course, if I'm short of breath, am I actually going to feel anxious? Ooh, it's very highly correlated. And many people will say, well, is it the shortness of breath that's causing the anxiety? Or is it the anxiety that's causing the shortness of breath? It's like a circle, isn't it? And of course, in the dying process, is somebody really fussed about the fact that they're dying? They're distressed on so many levels. Shortness of breath could be worse during that process. Now, there are many inputs to shortness of breath, and I want to suggest to you, just like we have total pain, we have total dyspnea. It's about the anatomical changes and the changes in receptors. It's about the physiological, but it's also about the behavioral, the social, and the environmental. If I've got things going on in my life that are distressing me, I can also get quite short of breath. So, now we've understood the causes, 
But of course, in a given patient, we're going to need to figure out what's actually going on. You and I are going to take, need to take a careful history. We're going to need to understand, is the shortness of breath related to exercise, movement, or is it continuous? And of course, we're going to need to think about, what's the severity? Come back to that in just a moment. And just like pain, what's the functional impact? We've said before, it's all about life. How can I help somebody improve their life experience through managing their shortness of breath? Or are they not sleeping? They're not eating. They're not moving. It's horrible because they're short of breath. Physical exam becomes very important, doesn't it? Can I hear the bronchospasm, the wheezes? Can I hear the crackles? Can I palpate a, an effusion? Maybe I don't hear any air movement. That's going to be a real problem. So physical exam becomes an important feature of assessing what's going on with shortness of breath. Now, in terms of severity, you could choose to use one of our very simple severity assessment scales. Many times we simply use the visual analog going from 0 up to 10, or words, some of us even use the Wong Baker Faces Scale if somebody doesn't understand it. But maybe it's just important to say, no shortness of breath? Is it mild, moderate, or severe, just as we do in pain? If you want to get more sophisticated, for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the Medical Research Council in the United Kingdom developed a dyspnea scale. Zero represents, I'm not short of breath until I do strenuous exercise. One is, I can walk pretty fast on level ground or uphill, but strenuous exercise, I'm going to be really short of breath. Two is, I get short of breath walking slower than others on level ground, or I have to stop to breathe while walking my own pace on level ground. Three is, I have to stop if I go more than 100 yards or a few minutes. And four is, I'm too breathless to leave the house. Now this is fine with patients with advancing illness who are still very functional. It doesn't really help us easily for patients who may have lost real capacity and are experiencing advanced illness because they may be too breathless and have other experiences not even getting out of bed. So alternately, Borg developed a dyspnea scale that's been modified by colleagues. I, I like this one very much. It simply puts words to our 0 to 10, going from I'm not short of breath at all to very severe to maximal shortness of breath. Or colleagues have also developed a nonverbal assessment scale that you and I can use to look at patients and see if they're shortness of breath. Let's walk through it. We look for their heart rate. One point would be 90 to 109 beats per minute. Two points would be above 110 beats per minute. So they're breathing a little faster. Let's give it a score of one. Respiratory rate is important, and you can see the parameters. Let's say this patient is breathing more than 30 breaths per minute. Let's give it a two. Restlessness, non-purposeful movements, Let's say this patient is occasionally restless. Let's give them a one. Paradoxical breathing pattern. We look at this patient, they don't have any. We'll give them a zero. Accessory muscle use, 
rise in the clavicle during inspiration. You've seen that. Let's say it's pronounced in our patient. We'll give them a two. Grunting, so that sort of uh, uh, at the end expiration, we'll give it a two. Nasal flaring, nares are opening, that sort of moving breath and trying to breathe a lot through your nose. Let's say it's present, we'll give it a two. And a look of fear on their face, oh my goodness, if that's present, we'll give it a two. So then we total up the score. This is purely observational. It gives us some guidance. For the score we've got there, we'd give it a 13 out of 16. This is severe shortness of breath by observation. Now, of course, you and I know not everybody who's short of breath actually has a normal breathing rate. I had one lady. She was having advanced cancer that started in her breast and a lot of shortness of breath. She was breathing really, really hard. So it's important that you and I look and see what's going on in our patients. So now let's listen to a real patient tell us her story of what shortness of breath was like for her. Our colleague, Dr. Charles Van Gunten, Vice President of Hospice and Palliative Medicine here at Ohio Health, was out to interview her, and we have her full permission on file. She's an 81-year-old retired nurse when Charles meets her. She was actually the dean of a nursing school for 10 years. And as she will tell you, her whole life she's been walking fast and talking fast. She has a loving husband who's at home and three grown sons who are fully supportive. Her underlying problem is that she's developed pulmonary fibrosis, which is now extremely advanced. She's very short of breath. And when Charles goes out to see her to do a palliative medicine consultation and admit her to hospice care, she was actually sleeping 18 hours a day and she'd lost a lot of weight. When Charles assessed her, he said, Hmm, I think, unless this changes, she's only got a prognosis of two to four weeks. So let's listen to Ellen, and she'll tell us her story. So I said, I don't want to live this way. I, I, I'd, I'd rather die. If, if it's going to be hospice, that's fine. I, it isn't, I'm not Ellen anymore. I can't do anything. Uh, I can't, I mean, I talk fast, I walk fast, but now I can't do that, and so I'm not Ellen. So what would it be like for you if you can't be you anymore? You can hear Ellen, she's completely frustrated, isn't she? Horrible. And she says, I just don't want to live like this. I, I had this, I had this, uh, weight on my chest I just I mean you don't want to face death you really even though you say you're ready and you don't want to live it's just scary so when you came it was I had this overwhelming weight of what are they going to do for me and I'm going to end up my life gasping for breath wanting to die and and having a hideous death so think about it the medical team has optimized all the therapies to manage her pulmonary fibrosis. And there she is, shorter breath, looking 
at the end of her life. And she's got all sorts of questions. Why does it have to be like this? Why am I suffering? Oh my goodness, what's going to happen to me? These physical metaphors for emotional and spiritual pain. So what does Ellen really need? Doesn't she need us to manage her shortness of breath? And you said, ah, we're not going to have, you're not going to have that. And I said, why? He says, because I'm going to give you medication and we're going to handle those symptoms and you're not going to be air hungry. And I said, you're sure? He said, you said, I'm sure. And it was sort of like that weight just lifted. He's going to do something. And not only that, you whipped out that prescription pad and you wrote me a prescription, which I never dreamed you would do. And not only did you write me a prescription for a narcotic, but you listened to me and, and I said, I can't take all narcotics. Many of them make me throw up and so on. Which one can you take? I can take Dilaudid. Fine. Instead of saying, which many people had said, oh, that's very, very strong narcotic. We can't start there. You didn't even bat an eye. You said, okay, it's Dilaudid. And you can take it every hour. I'm going to write your prescription. You can take every hour. Every hour? I, you know, I'd be on the floor asleep. But what it did is it lifted that weight. I mean, I, I, I don't even, I can't even go back and tell you how I felt because it doesn't make sense even to me. So there was the confident provider coming in, listening to the patient, doing a careful history and exam, understanding that she couldn't take all medications, but knowing fully that he could use morphine or he could use hydromorphone or oxycodone. And based on what she said, writing a prescription based on the pharmacokinetics, allowing her the possibility of taking a dose once an hour. Remember, she was the dean of a school of nursing. She was shocked. She'd never heard of this before. So then, when we got the Dilaudid, after we got the dosing straightened out, those pills are itty bitty bitty bitty, and you wrote it for a quarter of a milligram, and they come in two milligrams, and so they said, nah, 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 we have to get a pill cutter, and she can't cut it in four, so you said, up it to one milligram, and you never batted an eye. I mean, you never went into this, oh dear me, I'm giving her too much. You didn't do any of that. You said, make it a milligram. So I have my little pill cutter, and what it has done for me, which took me a while to come to grips with, it, um, and I took one just before you came, it makes it easier to breathe without my even realizing it. I mean, it, it gives me energy. It, it, it makes me almost be Ellen again. So there he was, giving her only a milligram of hydromorphone, if you remember the equivalence, that's equivalent to five milligrams of oral morphine. She takes it. Within the hour, she's almost Ellen again. She's able to do the things she wants to be able to do. And you can see in the video, she took a dose before Charles came. Is she walking fast? Talking fast? She sure is. Back to being Ellen. Now, how did it follow up? Well, she was actually able to get out of bed. She started sleeping normally, dropping from 18 down to a normal night, and she got her weight back again. She was able to walk fast and talk fast. 
So what are the consequences of good symptom control? How does it make people feel? Let's see what she says. And for some patients, when their symptoms get better controlled, they not only forget about their underlying illness, but they begin to even wonder if it's really there or it's all that bad. Has that happened to you? Well, it isn't. Well, what happens to me is I think it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. And it isn't. I know it isn't, but I keep thinking... Look how far you've come, mm-hmm. and look what you can do that's, quote, normal. I mean, like, we went out to see The Darkest Hour, mm-hmm. and I did really well. I came, you know, I, di- I didn't have any shortness of breath. I didn't have any problems. And so you fool yourself, and you think, I'm, getting, I'm back to normal, but it, then it doesn't take any time at all, and it catches up with you, and you know, you come home, and you just collapse mm-hmm. on the couch. So I'm still... S- I, I sleep eight hours every night, mm-hmm. and I take two two-hour naps. Mm-hmm. That's not normal. Mm-hmm. So I'm not normal, right. and I, I can't do things with family that I would like to do. Yeah. So th- those are hard. This, those are hard realities to deal with. Those are things that make me cry. That make me say. But I want to go visit my granddaughter, and uh, she's in California, and uh, I want to go visit her, but I can't. And my family have finally learned, don't invite me, because then I just get all weepy, you know. And I have a, I have a grandson who's in the Ohio State Marching Band, and he plays a sousaphone, and you know, they get to dot the I. Mm-hmm. Well, he, you don't get to, I've learned a lot about the band. I could give you a dissertation on the band, but you, you can't dot the I until you've been in the band four years. So he didn't, get, he didn't make it his f- freshman year. So he's, next year he'll be a senior, but he's going to stay one whole semester longer so he can dot the I. Wow. But I want to see him dot the I. Mm-hmm. So that's my goal is okay. I can get to the, I don't know how we're going to do it, but um, my daughter-in-law says, that will pull strings from somebody's strings and they'll have a wheelchair for me and I'll get to go to the game where he dots the eye. So that's my goal. So there was Ellen. When Charles first saw her, he thought she was going to live two to four weeks unless we controlled her symptoms. And we did. Ultimately, although she started at a milligram of hydromorphone, equivalent to five milligrams of morphine, she went up to five or six milligrams each dose, which is fine. She was actually taking it only six or eight times a day. Her husband was helping her with that, and she was still able to get out and about even until the last couple of months of her life. She was walking fast and talking fast and enjoying her family. Ellen died peacefully at home in December 2018 18 months after she was first seen by Charles. And over the entire time, she was supported by the hospice team. What a success. I hope you will get early management of people's dyspnea and use the opioids for their value. So we've heard Ellen's story, 
And you can hear with the best of underlying treatment of her pulmonary fibrosis, coupled with great symptom management, she did really well. So let's think about, for any given patient, what are the things that might help treat the cause of their shortness of breath? Can you imagine bronchospasm is actually highly prevalent? Particularly when there's an inflammatory response, we get a lot of tightening of our airways. Bronchodilators such as albuterol, salbutamol, coupled with inhaled or even systemic steroids such as dexamethasone can really help to relieve that bronchospasm. I think we need to try it regularly. Pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure, we're going to need to aggressively use diuretics and think about how can we keep that heart functioning optimally to minimize that edema. If there's obstruction, which may occur with an underlying cancer, remember there's always an inflammatory response around the tumor. Will steroids such as dexamethasone help? And if it has an effect, do we use radiation therapy to relieve the obstruction and help people have a larger volume that they can ventilate? Pleural effusions can be a real problem. Do we need to drain the fluid? Sometimes we even need to place a permanent catheter in their chest. Nursing colleagues at home can drain that pleural effusion as it reaccumulates very effectively. Now, anemia is an interesting problem, isn't it? We get reduced carrying capacity, but the question is, is the patient short of breath or not? Only when they get down to a level where they're feeling shortness of breath should we transfuse. I've had patients as low as three grams per deciliter who actually aren't short of breath, mostly because they're in bed and not moving very much. And finally, if there's bleeding, particularly from the chest, again, back to that radiation, a single dose can stop the hemoptysis that patients are experiencing and help them feel much more comfortable. So always start with treating the cause, and in Ellen's case, her therapy had been completely optimized. It was important for Charles to review it as he did his first consult, and he was clear the pulmonologists had done everything they could possibly do. It was the best. So now we've effectively reviewed Ellen's causes, and we know things have been optimized. You're going to do that with each of your patients, aren't you? But at the same time, we need to treat the experience. Nobody wants to be short of breath. And I suspect if I was to ask you, you'd say, I I'm only going to tolerate shortness of breath for a few minutes. So what's going to be most effective? It turns out that actually non-pharmacological interventions can have a real impact on shortness of breath. It's something that everybody can do. They don't need a doctor's prescription. The most effective is actually a fan blowing air on your face. Remember my little story about being in the airplane and you opened up the nozzle and the air came down and you felt better? It's just the same thing. So get a fan gently blowing. Consider opening the window. Make sure it's cool. Get rid of any environmental irritants. More sophisticated pulmonary rehab and education can help patients early in their illness, later helping people relax, positioning them, maybe if they're extreme, asking them to try purse lip breathing 
will help them feel shortness of breath. And never forget about those modalities like acupuncture. We've actually seen that it can improve walking distance, shortness of breath, and quality of life ratings on our patients. Now, some patients get a lot of secretions, so we need to consider draining those secretions. Particularly as patients are approaching the end of their lives, we may need to put the head of their bed down and Trendelenburg them on their side and consider a postal drainage to get those secretions to move. Nebulized saline can actually help break up some of those really dry secretions and help people's dry airway feel better. Remember, a lot of our patients approaching the end of life are actually mouth breathing. And it gets very dry very quickly. Sometimes we can actually use a mucolytic, such as acetylcysteine, to break up the mucus. But most of the time, what we, try, what we want to try to do is actually use an anticholinergic. Hyacyamine, such as levsin, glycopyrrolates, scopolamine, atropine, can all be very effective. You see here a patient wearing a scopolamine transdermal patch. She's placed it behind her ear. Does she need to leave it there? Well, in fact, no, because the medication is going to act systemically. She could put it anywhere on her body. Now, what about that wonderful oxygen? Have you been to your hospital and seen how many patients are actually on oxygen therapy? It's a very potent symbol of medical care. Is it really useful? Only in patients who actually are desaturating is it going to help them if they're short of breath. Even some patients with advancing COPD have desaturated, but they've adapted. They don't feel short of breath. It's expensive. In fact, at home, it can cost hundreds of dollars a month to supply the patient with a concentrator and portable tanks of oxygen to be out and about. And a randomized, double-blinded, multi-center controlled trial comparing the effect of oxygen with room air via nasal cannula showed that the room air was just as effective. So what are we doing? We're actually just like the fan. We're blowing air across those baroreceptors in our naris, and we feel not short of breath. The fan can do just as well. So be careful about use of oxygen. It's expensive, and while people like the idea, you may be throwing money down the drain. Now, what's really going to be effective? Well, it turns out it's those opioids. Oxygen didn't change dyspnea. No matter whether the patient was hypoxic or non-hypoxic, what really made a difference, just like it made a difference for Ellen, was the introduction of a very low dose of an opioid. We could use morphine, or just like Ellen, we could use hydromorphone. They're both very similar in their actions. It has both a central as well as a peripheral effect. In fact, there are quite limited studies, and this leads many folks to be quite nervous about using them, particularly with advancing pulmonary disease. People say, oh, you're going to slow the respiratory drive. But is that true? I don't think so. We're going to use only five milligrams of morphine as our starting dose. It's equivalent to a tramadol 50 milligram tablet or 
It's not even equivalent to one of our tablets we use here in North America, such as Percocet. That's stronger than five milligrams of morphine. It certainly doesn't change oxygen saturation and may not change survival. We start with low doses. I usually offer five milligrams of morphine or the equivalents once every hour as needed, titrate to effect, usually for patients not previously on opioids, we're in the range of 30 to 60 milligrams a day. As you heard with Ellen, sometimes we escalate the dose higher. Although there's been some speculation about nebulized opioids, the data doesn't show that they're effective. That's actually not my personal experience. And I think as we look at the two trials that were reported on large study populations, they didn't talk about the underlying pathophysiology. I've certainly seen in selected patients, they work very well. Now, do opioids change tachypnea? I think it's an important thing for us to remember, they don't necessarily. I want to tell you the brief story of a young woman. She's 35 years of age. She was dying of massive cancer that had started in her breast with a lot of spread to her lungs. When I first met her, she was not only gurgling from the secretions, but she sounded like this. I'm really short of breath. Please help me. She was breathing in the 40s, very distressed. I said, no problem. Let's get you some morphine. I started a dose, very low dose, five milligrams. Came back an hour later to see her. This is what I saw. Thank you very much. I'm not short of breath anymore. I looked at her and said, are you kidding? No, thank you. I'm fine now. Well, we hadn't changed her to kypnea, but she was feeling completely different. So it's not what we see, it's what they experience that matters. She remained comfortable. I was able to titrate her dose of morphine, increasing it slightly, and she died comfortably in our care. Now, some people think, well, should I add a benzodiazepine? Anxiety is a big factor. Will that help? And it might, but I want you to think very carefully about this because benzodiazepines have four major clinical effects, and some of them we don't necessarily want, particularly in the elderly. Yes, they're anxiolytic sedatives, and that's okay. But the problem is they inhibit short-term memory, and they're amnestics. And that may not be good for the elderly person who's already got some level of cognitive dysfunction. They also relax skeletal muscles, and so the elderly can stand up, forget that they were sitting down, and forget what they're on, and they fall. And that can be a real problem. And of course, they're anticonvulsants, never forget, but that doesn't play out here. So I'm going to recommend that what we try is the non-pharmacological interventions first to manage that anxiety and only turn to benzodiazepines if we truly need them in the patient who's got more time to enjoy life. Several other things have actually been tried to, to manage shortness of breath. There's a very small literature about use of chlorpromazine. We've already discussed the bronchodilators. Will nebulized furosemide or lidocaine be helpful? And what about blood products? Again, think about these very carefully. For me, if I'm thinking about a stepwise approach, 
For patients with mild shortness of breath, I'm going to start first with a non-pharmacological. Get the fan going, try the relaxation, how can I calm the patient? For moderate shortness of breath, start that morphine, 5 milligrams or 2.5 milligrams orally, once an hour as needed, and see how much the patient needs. Once the shortness of breath is severe and I can see they're using the morphine routinely, I make it routine, I can even use the long-acting or sustained release opioids, plus PRN doses if they need it. You could hear that Ellen was using six to eight doses per day. No more, she didn't really need it, and she was still very functional. And finally, sometimes dyspnea becomes refractory. The patient continues to be short of breath, they're very distressed, independent of the underlying cause and everything we've been able to do. So in the case of extreme or refractory, where increasing the opioid isn't going to make a difference, do I need to now add the amnestic effect to make sure the patient is not aware of their shortness of breath and titrate enough to give them sedation and relief? We did have to do that with Ellen in the last few days of her life. Now, as patients approach the end of their lives, we also need to recognize that there are changes in breathing patterns. You probably remember them. Some patients get apnea. They take a breath, and then there's a long gap before the next breath, and it gets longer and longer. Or those the chain stokes respirations, basically the breathing control center is effectively dying, insensitive to gases in the same way, and it's only when the oxygen drops or the CO2 really rises, it kind of wakes up and catches up. You know the breaths. <sighs> Followed by a lot of apnea. Or there's Kuzmal's respirations, that fish breathing. <sighs> or maybe it's simply, as they fatigue, the tidal volume goes down and their breaths get faster and faster. So don't think that these are necessarily representative of the patient's shorter breath. If you're concerned they are, they are, give them a little bit of opioid, but recognize this is a sign of the dying process. It's normal, and in fact, by the time the breathing control center is not working, our cortex is probably not working very well at all and the patient's probably not aware of what's going on. Tachypnea can be distressing. These breathing patterns can be distressing. We need to always treat the patient and support the family. Education here is going to be absolutely crucial. So my question for you is, as you think about this module, what's your core take-home message? Is it treat the cause and all the causes? Is it treat the experience? And are you going to start morphine early? Did Ellen give you the clear message where Charles thought she was going to live two to four weeks if we didn't do anything? With good symptom control, she actually lived much longer than anybody expected. Let's do the best for our patients, and let's help them have the best possible life. It's all about life, isn't it? Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. 
PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.